Hello and welcome into another episode on the Labumba Pastors blog. I'm Masumba Jonathan. Today's lesson is a continuation of our study that we began yesterday. The title of the lesson is Sound Doctrine Part 2. If you missed part one of this lesson, it's better that you first go back and listen to that before listening to this continuation. Let me begin today by reminding us of the three principles I gave for making sure that we have correct doctrine. Principle one is that my doctrinal claim must not contradict anything the Bible says on the topic. Principle two is that my doctrinal position must account for everything the Bible says about the topic. And principle three is that my doctrinal position should be supported by Scripture and flow into agreement with more Scripture. In the previous study, we focused on the first two points. Now, we will illustrate point number three with a discussion on the roles of men and women described in the church. Principle three instructs us that my doctrinal position should be supported by Scripture and flow into agreement with more Scripture. Simply put, truth will lead you into more truth. It will take you to truthful conclusions, while error will lead you into more error. It will take you into places that you might not even have desired to go when you first came to that position. For example, there's a certain hermeneutic principle that's become quite popular among so-called progressive Christians. Hermeneutics refers to interpretation of the Bible. Principle number one for good interpretation of the Bible, good hermeneutics, is to believe that the Bible is the word of God and that you can trust it as true. The bad hermeneutic I'm referring to among liberals is the idea that certain portions of Scripture were only meant for a certain time period or cultural context. The principle dictates that as cultures change and society develops, there are some things which no longer have to apply to us today. Now, here's why, here's why you'll see this sets us up for failure in principle three. If I say that principle is true, that certain things apply to the church in the time of the New Testament, but they don't apply to me anymore. I'm making the Bible merely subjective in its truth, meaning what I choose to follow or not follow in the Bible is up to me and my judgment. And there's no guide or authority for any of us to say one truth applies always while others were just temporary. This means even the most essential truths of the gospel can be discarded logically. Someone can say Jesus was the way, truth, and life in a certain time period, but now there are other ways. Thus, we see that when you have a bad doctrinal position, it winds up, winds up taking us to a place where truth is lost. I want to further illustrate this reality with a discussion on male and female roles described in the Bible. We have a very big contradiction in Ugandan culture between the roles of men and women at home versus how they behave in the church. At home, women are often treated as being of lesser value than men. Food must be served to the omwami, that's husband or chief for our English listeners, as the wife is kneeling down before him. The man's authority is uncontested and his accountability is non-existent. 
He does what he likes, whenever he likes, and no one can tell him otherwise. The idea of a wife not being submissive is completely foreign to our family structure here in Uganda. But in the church in Uganda, we find many ladies in positions of leadership and authority over men. I would say one of the main reasons for this is men are simply absent and not interested in spiritual things. Often, ladies are left to fill gaps where God has commanded men to be. This is not the only reason, of course, for having ladies in positions of elders in churches, but it certainly is a contributing factor. But what does the Bible say on who is supposed to lead God's church? Look at these two passages. The first one is from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 to 38, which says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Then 1 Timothy 2 from verse 11 to 13 gives us a very similar statement. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Neither one of those passages that I just read is hard to understand, right? They are very straightforward. The Bible says women are forbidden from teaching men or having positions of authority over them. But since that instruction contradicts what is normal and is different than what many people want to do, we find that people seek ways of disobeying this command. It's in these justifications of disobedience that we find good examples of failing our third principle. I will give you some popular rebuttals opponents of these instructions give. A very popular example is this verse in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 27 and 28, which says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The logic for supporting, for taking from this passage and concluding that women can be pastors and can teach men and have authority over men, from verse 28, goes something like this. Since God says there is no longer male or female, Women can be in leadership over men, and men can be in the roles previously assigned to women. Does that position, that doctrinal position, because that's coming to a doctrinal position based on a, a passage, does it fit with this passage in Galatians 3, the context? Does it fit with the rest of what the Bible says on that topic? And does it lead us into truthful behavior? No, not at all. First, If God is saying that there are no more men and women in the church, why does he give specific instructions to men and others to women throughout the New Testament? 
if there's no such thing as men and women anymore, why does he address men specifically and women specifically and give them different instructions? Why does he give specific instructions similarly? Because the verse also says there's no such thing as slaves or free. Why does God go on to give us specific instructions for slaves and instructions for slave owners in the New Testament if there's no such thing as slaves or free people? Also, if there's no male or female, why then can't a man marry another man or a woman marry another woman? Because you're saying, you're telling me that gender doesn't exist anymore. If gender no longer exists in Christ, you can't logically claim that homosexuality is wrong. Yet the Bible condemns it, right? You see what I mean about wrong doctrine taking you down a path that leads to error? What is God actually talking about in Galatians 3? The context of the letter of Galatians is that Paul is correcting a heresy that to be saved, everyone had to be circumcised and keep the law. Essentially, Jews saying they were followers of Christ were changing the message of the gospel. They were teaching Gentile believers that those Gentiles had to become Jews to be saved. The issue is addressed very well in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, if you want to go there and, and look at the context of it. That's why Paul opens with this statement in Galatians 1 from verse 6 to 8. We read this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So what's Paul worried about with his audience here? They had turned away from the gospel as it was delivered to them to something new. Now he hasn't explained what it is yet, but later on in the letter he does explain what the differences were. And in Galatians chapter 5, remember he, he talks about if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage to you. So this, this taking of verse 28 out of its context and trying to use it to, to prove that you can do, men and women can do whatever they want, it doesn't matter, God doesn't care about it. You're being so unfaithful to the text of Scripture. It's obvious that you have an agenda, that you don't want to find out what is true, you just want to do what you want to do. And that's where we find lots of mistakes made in people's doctrinal positions. It's because we're sinful and we, we rebel against God's word instead of submitting to it. So Paul goes on to say, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let that person be accursed. So when Paul tells us there's no Jews or Greeks, he's not saying that when we get saved, we lose our nationality or ethnicity. If that were true, if that's what God was saying, how could the Bible then tell us that in God's kingdom, we have representatives from all nations, tribes, and languages? In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Paul's reasoning is rather that to be saved is not a matter of your nationality, your occupation, your gender, or any other such feature. You can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. 
In contrast to the use of Galatians 3 to support women in leadership, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 are both given in the context of behavior God wants in the church. Another popular way people try to dismiss what the Bible says in those places is to claim that perhaps there were very rebellious women who needed to be stopped in those congregations. Or to say that those instructions were because of the cultural roles of men and women, but those things don't apply to us in our day. However, what does God say when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 14? It says, as in all the churches of the saints. What does that mean? It's obvious this isn't just meant for one place and time. This is God's rule for his church everywhere. Paul gives the same context for his instruction in 1 Timothy, where he explains the reason for his writing in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Why were these instructions given? So we could know how we are to behave in the house of God. That's what it says. But still further, opponents try to argue that this hierarchy came in as a result of the curse, and that when Christ came, he did away with this leadership structure of men being in leadership over women. But again, this runs into problems with what the text says. What is the first reason God gives in explaining his reasoning in 1 Timothy 2 about forbidding women from being in authority? Paul writes quite simply, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice that, that the creation of man and woman occurred before sin entered the world, right? It was in the beginning, and God said in the beginning that everything was good. Everything was how he wanted it to be. This is how God created things from the beginning. Paul gives similar reasoning in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says that even the law says women must be in submission. This is not a new concept or one that Jesus removed. From creation, God ordained hierarchy and commanded men to lead. People will still further mention examples like the Judge Deborah, the prophetess Deborah from the book of Judges, to seek to justify women being pastors. But we, you see that the arguments just get weaker and weaker, and once again demonstrate people aren't really concerned about obeying God. What they want to find is any excuse to do what they want to do. Deborah lived long before the church was founded. There were no pastors in her day and age. The, the church had not been founded. Christ had not come. The priests, the Levitical priests, were the ministers before God. And Deborah appears as an anomaly. She was unusual. Even in the Old Testament, there weren't a lot of women that you see God use prominently in, in positions of speaking his word to his people. There's a few examples. And majorly when you find those examples, they're in times where the nation was very corrupt, living in idolatry and rebellion to God's word. And it's almost like there was no faithful men and God sent women to rebuke the children of Israel for failing to live according to his commands. To say since God used Deborah in a time of idolatry in Israel, so it's okay for women to be pastors, fails to pass any of the three principles for sound doctrine that we've learned in this study. You may have understood principle three very well, 
but are having a hard time because of the, the topic I chose to illustrate it. If so, I urge you to go back and study for yourself. You shouldn't have to fight with scripture. If you submit to what it says, you'll find it's very easy to come to correct conclusions. But if you resist it, you'll never understand it, and you'll find God opposing you instead of blessing you. According to Jesus, God's word is the food of a believer. Lying to yourself about what it says is like mingling in some poison with your food. Do you like to take poison with your meals? Of course not. But that's the danger you run when you refuse to submit to God's word. Jesus gives us this promise when we keep his instructions. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God bless you all.